Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. You're listening to episode number 167 on this Thursday here on KSL News Radio. This next conversation I'm so excited to have. It, uh, it, has, it has everything. It has a little bit of history. It has uh, a great wise move made uh, by a great grandmother all the way back in 1936. And it also uh, dovetails into a conversation uh, about equity and equality and home ownership and the disparity right now which exists between uh, black and white families across this country when it comes uh, to the owning of a home. Uh, to, to give you a little background, I received an email the other day uh, with a note about a remarkable story which reaches, as I said, back to 1936 and shows how a decision made by the daughter of slaves changed the financial future of her own family for generations to come. The story starts in North Carolina and over the years winds its way here to South Jordan, Utah, where Ty Christensen lives uh, with her family. Ty has a story to tell us, a story of pride, uh, wise investment, love, and luck, and joins us now. Uh, Ty, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well today. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to, to have you on the line here. I'm anxious to hear of this fascinating story and some of the observations that you have made uh, both in your professional life and as someone who has benefited from uh, what happened all, all these uh, years ago. Before, before we get into the story of your great-grandmother, tell us first uh, about yourself. Who are you? Well, again, my name is Ty Christensen. I'm originally from New Jersey, moved to Utah in 1999 to attend Brigham Young University, I've been in mortgages for the last 20 years, and I work for the CBC Mortgage Agency, and we provide down payment assistance through our Chinoa Fund. And and what you do professionally will will, will come into the second part of our conversation, some of the observations that you have made in your professional life. Uh, All right, so back to the the history of this. Your your great-grandmother was uh, a widow very early in life after the death of her husband. She uh, was left to raise four sons on a housekeeper's wages. Uh, but what she was able to do with that small amount of money, uh, she was able to save uh, and have an impact on nearly all of her descendants. What did she do in 1936 that's still impacting your family today? So that's correct. Um, in 1936, my great-grandmother, who was a widow of four young boys, she actually had five boys, but one of her sons tragically died in infancy. So she was widowed and had four young boys, and her mother was living with her, helping her try and make ends meet, and she decided that she was going to save as much money as she could and buy a home. And so as a housekeeper or a house servant, they were called back in the day, she was able to secure 
$500 over a period of time, saving slowly and and dutifully, and she purchased a plot of of property in Hillsborough, North Carolina with a home on it, and that one decision really changed the trajectory for my family. What what were wages like for her, and how much time did it take her to save these $500? So I asked my cousin Vicki about this. Um, she's the family historian, if you will. She loves family history. Um, and she said it took her a couple of years to save up that money. She didn't tell me how much wages were, but if you can imagine back in the day, uh, we're not talking about a great sum of money here. So she really had to be diligent in saving uh, that money to secure that home for her and the boys. But it was very, very important to her. And she lived in that home until her last breath at 101 years old. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. Uh, What can you tell us about the home and the property? Big, comfortable place? Or what was it like? What did $500 get her back then? It wasn't. It was not a big house when she bought it uh, back in the day. She did add on to it as the years progressed. So there were a couple additions to it. She actually had family members that lived with her over the years as well. So they built some additional properties on the property of land. Uh, I believe it was an acre and a half. Uh, Don't quote me on that. It might be an acre and a quarter. But it was really decent-sized land um, in North Carolina, very rural back then. Still is pretty rural right now, the part that she owned. Um, And like I said, she had family members living with her. There are several little outhouses on the property, really, really cute, heavily wooded, a little white uh, shingled house. Uh, What was the neighborhood like? Was it a neighborhood or was it just a plot of land with a house out in the country? What was was it like when she first purchased it? When she first purchased it, it was just basically this little house in the middle of the country, um, country area back there. I mean, we're not talking about a thriving metropolis. Even now, if you go uh, to Nash Street, which the property resides on, it's still a very quaint little community, very heavily wooded, a small home kind of tucked back into the woods, very quiet. Uh, When you think about uh, old southern roads that are hilly and rolling hills and green, that's pretty quintessential, and that's exactly what the neighborhood that the house is in. Uh, I think of a butterfly effect. That's one where uh, a seemingly mundane happening triggers uh, a series of larger and increasingly larger and consequential events. And that seems to be what happened to to your family. Uh, A home purchased for $500 in 1936, as you've described, has had a massive impact uh, on on your family, generations to follow uh, that of your great-grandmother. Describe that impact. What, What happened? I think the one word I would use to quantify that one decision she made is she became the family role model. Um, All four of her boys became homeowners, and then all of their children subsequently went to college with the equity from those homes that they owned. And then now we're in the great-grandchildren generation, which is my generation, and we still are all homeowners and have gone to college based on the equity from our parents, which, again, was based on the equity of their parents before them. And so in my personal line, my grandfather was a multiple-time homeowner. Uh, When he passed away, my parents not only got the money from his homes that he owned, additionally, there was some money that they received from my great-grandmother's passing as well. They both passed around the same period of time. And my dad and my uncle, they both own multiple properties um, all around the country, very, very successful. All of the kids have gone to college based on the equity of all of these properties. And so... You know, 1936, she's not thinking generations down the line. If you could know my great-grandmother, she was a very, very sweet woman, very kind, 
but quiet. You know, she just, she loved her family and she wanted to provide the best life that she could for her boys. And being that type of a role model, setting that example for our family, we've all followed in her footsteps. If she hadn't made that purchase in 1936, uh, would your family be where they are today? You know, it's really funny you ask that, and I actually get to ask that question quite a bit. The answer is, I don't think so. You know, growing up, we lived in a, in a very nice neighborhood, but it was predominantly white. So I didn't realize that most black Americans didn't own their own homes until I got into the mortgage industry. You know, when you grow up in an environment, you think your reality is kind of everyone's reality. It's the naivete of being a child. And so I would think that we would follow the path of most black Americans, which is to become a habitual renter. Mm. I have to take a break right now, but I'll ask you to hang on because I want to jump into uh, that point that you just uh, brought up, and that is uh, black and white home ownership in America and the disparity that you have observed in your professional life uh, and also have you, as you have uh, looked back to the, uh, the atypical example set uh, by your own family. Uh, my guest, Ty Christensen, has a fascinating story. Uh, all of this stems from a $500 purchase uh, made uh, almost a century ago by her great-grandmother, Mary Faribault. So we're going to talk more about this next. Uh, Ty, my guest, uh, head on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, just after 1.30 here at KSL News Radio. We are now continuing a fascinating conversation that started just before the newscast there. My guest is Ty Christensen. Her story is this. She uh, has a great-grandmother who in 1936 made a purchase uh, for $500. Uh, the, the, the daughter of slaves purchased a piece of property uh, in North Carolina with a home on it. And the story goes in the Christensen and Faribault family that, uh, that for years to come, that the generations that uh, succeeded uh, Mrs. Mary Faribault, that each generation would be blessed uh, due to that $500 decision in 1936. How so? Uh, Well, she owned property, and with property comes equity, and with equity comes flexibility, and with flexibility comes the opportunity for her sons uh, to go to college and ultimately instill in their own children uh, a desire for education and an understanding uh, of the value of uh, owning something and being able to uh, plant your flag uh, and to have pride uh, and have possession, and with that possession, uh, value. So, Ty, uh, thanks again for, for being a part of this conversation. Uh, tell me again what it is you do and, uh, and where you dedicate yourself professionally these days. So I am the Director of Government Affairs for CDC Mortgage Agency, and we are one of the nation's leading providers of down payment assistance. And so I've spent my life in the mortgage industry for the last 20 years, typically working with the underserved communities and and dedicated my life to low to moderate income borrowers becoming homeowners and beginning to build equity. That decision that your great-grandmother made, that, uh, that set in motion a chain of events that allowed one generation to uh, help the next, uh, ultimately trickling down to, to you and your family. Uh, but that is, that's an exception not the norm when it comes to uh, the abilities uh, of African-American families here in this country. What's the reality? What is the disparity right now between uh, black and white home ownership? Absolutely correct. So the white home ownership rate sits at about 74% nationwide. 
the black homeownership rate is just about 44%. 44% actually an increase over the past couple of years, um, but it's still far lower than the homeownership rate back when the Fair Housing Act was passed in the 60s. And so that large percentage difference really, really increases the racial wealth gap within this country. Why is that the case? I, the, the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968. Uh, that's a half a century ago. What are the lingering effects, if there are any? Well, unfortunately, prior to the Fair Housing Act passing, uh, something called redlining was was the business of the day. And that's where in black neighborhoods, they would literally draw red lines around the appraisal maps and prevent lending in those areas or make it very difficult to get mortgages for those areas, very high interest rates, things of that nature. And so those areas actually valued at a far less substantial rate than the white areas, even though property size-wise, they were pretty much the same home. And so we're still feeling the effects of that in those underserved minority communities where the home values are just so much lower than they are in the white community. So if you were fortunate enough to be able to acquire a mortgage, the equity that you were able to have was far less than in white neighborhoods. And so, you know, 40 plus years later, we're still feeling those effects, even though those practices were outlawed many, many decades ago. Has that impact uh, gone down at all? Is it a matter of time? Uh, Is there a fix? And is it a societal one or should government be involved? So a little bit of everything, right? It definitely is a societal issue when you look at the median uh, wealth between blacks and white families, right? So there's going to take some time to correct those things. Currently, the median net worth for a white family is about $171,000. For black families in our country, the average median net worth is about $17,000. So whites have about 10 times more wealth than blacks just due to historical disproprieties. It's going to take many, many years to correct that. Part of the course correction is through home ownership, which is great that there are programs out there like the Chinoa Fund that existing guidelines state, hey, if you're unable to get a down payment from your friends and your family, which is super uncommon in black and brown communities, asking mom and dad for $10,000 for a down payment is a really big deal when you don't come from family of means. And that's where there's programs like the Chinoa Fund that step in and they're able to lend you that money and then sometimes lend it to you for zero interest, zero payment loans. Fascinating. Uh, And what about government? Is Is there a government role in this? Should there be policy changes? Well, I think the way the government has it set up right now needs to stand. And so it's really important that HUD and FHA continue to, you know, support policies that are already in place that say that you can obtain down payment assistance from national providers. These are really great policies that are already existing and need to be continued to be supported. Is there opposition to that, uh, that maintenance of the status quo? There is a little bit of opposition to that. Right now, actually, there is some rules that could potentially be put into play that would prevent national down payment assistance providers to being able to provide down payment assistance on a nationwide basis. And this would have long-standing effects within communities of color. Minority communities would be unable to access these down payment assistance programs that are just critical to them to becoming homeowners. 
Uh, last question. We've been speaking about how uh, things look at the national level. How, how does Utah fare in terms of all of the uh, disparities that we've described and the differences between uh, various black and white experiences? So unfortunately, Utah is pretty status quo. Um, the black homeownership rate is very, very low here, um, very similar to the nationwide rate. Um, we have a lot of work to do here in Utah, specifically since our minority population is so much lower than many of the other states in the union. We've got a lot of work to, here to do to increase equitable access to credit for our minority population. All right. Uh, I said that was the last question, but I do have one more. Uh, tell me, what's the legacy of your great-grandmother? Uh, what is, how, how does your family remember her? Oh, remember and we miss her. We remember her as being a kind and compassionate woman who wanted nothing but the best for her family. And so when I look at my girls and my sisters look at their children, we want to continue on the legacy of home ownership passing down equity from generation to generation, and cooking. She was a great cook. She loved <laughs> to cook, and we all love to cook, too. Ty Christensen, thank you so much, and uh, thanks to your uh, great-grandmother for leading us to this conversation here and, uh, of course, to the great success of your family. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Absolutely. Uh, how about that, huh? Uh, it is important, uh, equity and value and worth and, you know, trying to uh, get ahead and doing so with an eye towards what you can uh, pass down to your future generations. That's the dream, right? That's the dream. And we're all after it, you know, regardless of uh, black or white. Uh, we're certainly after it. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for stories from history. So to hear uh, the the unique circumstance under which a piece of property was purchased in North Carolina all the way back in 1936 by a widow, a mother of four, a housekeeper, uh, the daughter of slaves. Uh, it, it's a beautiful story. And the lessons that this family at least has learned, uh, I think, are valuable to you and I as well. Quick break right now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about a tweet from the president. I try not to make it a habit of uh, dissecting the tweets uh, shared by uh, President Trump, but uh, this one is an $18 million tweet, and it has to do with Utah. Details coming up next. I'm Lee Lonsberry. This is Live Mike, and you're listening to KSL News Radio.